Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. We should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Retro Spectrum. 1999 Fight Club. I want you to pod me as hard as you cast. <laughs> oh, God. It's the dirtiest thing you've ever said to me on this podcast. And that's I don't know something. how to feel right now. Yeah, Matt, this is, a, this is an exciting one because we were exactly the right age for this movie to come out. And, you know, this has to be up there back in 1999, the fall of 1999, with my most anticipated movies of all time, like even now, like probably in the, the top 10 movies I was most looking forward to seeing at that moment. I had read the book before the movie was even in production, I think. Uh, I was stoked. This was huge on Ain't It Cool News. I loved the trailer, loved everyone involved. I couldn't have been more in to this movie prior to its release. This is Fincher's fourth film, right? Mm-hmm. But you were already way on board by this point. I mean, I remember vividly sitting in class with you on a Monday morning and you'd tell me all about the game, which you had seen in theaters over the weekend. Yeah, and, I love uh, the game. And you saw Seven in theaters as well? I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I definitely saw it on, on DVD or VHS or whatever. Sure. Pretty soon after it came out. Yeah, that, that was not a theater movie for me. That would have been tough. What, 13 years old, going to see uh, Seven by yourself. That's not a movie you take your parents to. I, I remember watching Seven for the first time alone. I was That was the most jarred I've ever been at the end of a movie. I, w- I just walked around with my, my head in my hands, uh, trying to contemplate what the fuck just happened. So, <laughs> What does it all mean? Yeah, uh, so David Fincher was definitely on my radar, and I loved this book, and uh, you know, I love Brad Pitt, so yeah, this, this checked all the proverbial boxes. Yeah, this was a big, I was a big Entertainment Weekly guy, and I, I, I always looked forward to those, um, you know, fall movie preview, you know, awards season preview or whatever, and yep. this one was particularly intriguing, more so than Fincher. I mean, I certainly knew who Fincher was. I don't know if I saw the game before I saw Fight Club, but I certainly saw Seven, but more so than uh, Fincher, I was way on board because of Norton. Primal Fear guy. Yes, I was very much a Primal Fear guy. When Edward Norton first came onto my radar, I was just like, this is the guy. This is he's the, he's the Brando of his generation. Like I can't believe 
I'm going to get to experience his rise in real time, you know? And this is the year after Rounders. Uh, yes, that's true. Yeah, so if you if you just go through, you know, I mean, Primal Fury is basically his first movie. It's insane. You know, he has one credit before that, but Primal Fear, for all intents and purposes, is his first film. He gets Oscar nominated for it. Then he immediately works with Woody Allen. Then he immediately works with Milos Forman. People versus Larry Flint is where Fincher really took notice of him, even though he's already an Oscar nominee by this point. <laughs> and so, yes, then he does Rounders, um, which is not a hit, but still, you know, kind of resonates. It shows his versatility and it shows, you know, how incredible he can be playing off somebody like uh, like Damon. Right. American History X oh, is 98. 98. Okay. Yeah. So. Primal so Fear, everyone says I love you. People versus Larry Flint, Rounders, American History X. So it's like this This is the most important actor of his generation is kind of what I remember thinking at the time. <laughs> and the fact that he was paired up with Brad Pitt in this really dark and provocative looking film directed by David Fincher that just had these just had this banger of a trailer, you know, introduced me to the idea of the Pixies for the first time. Uh-huh. You know, I'm sure I was I was digging deep into Napster and LimeWire trying to find that Pixies song. Whereas my mind was on probably every CD mix I made for like the next five years <laughs> yes, for sure. Exactly right. <laughs> and I can't tell I mean considering that the the song is such an important part of the trailer, when it finally hits there at the end of the movie and the final moments, it was just ecstasy to say the least. Uh so yeah, I'm like, Norton, this this is the most important guy. I will follow this guy anywhere. And his his, his career has not followed the path that I ever expected for him. And I've been listening to him on a lot of podcasts recently because he's doing press for Motherless Brooklyn. And I've been reminded of just what an incredibly intelligent and well-read guy is. I mean, he went to Yale, you know, like just listening to him in interviews, listening to him on the um, Fight Club commentary, which I re-listened re- re- to recently, which is quite amazing. It's pretty easy to find online. I'm just struck by what a thoughtful, intelligent dude he is and how prepared he is for every single one of these roles. And he's made good movies and he's made bad movies and he's been Oscar nominated, but he's also had some fallow periods in his career. He's sort of infamous for being pretty difficult to work with. A lot of the people that he worked with on a movie like The Italian Job have nothing but bad things to say about him. You know, he got sideways with Marvel with all the weird Incredible Hulk stuff that was going on. And apparently his Oscar-nominated role in Birdman was written for him because that character, I think, is pretty darn close to how he is in real life. Like, probably a genius, but also kind of an, you know, kind of a pretentious ass. Real persnickety motherfucker, this guy, yeah. I don't know, he's just had a, he's just had a truly interesting career, but this is not, by this point, you know, in 1999, looking at this guy, I, I would have expected by 2019, he'd already have three Oscars, you know? Sure. It was pretty exciting to see him, and I think he was 29 when he made this movie, going on 30, and he was... He was the most exciting part of it for me. But then just the more I started reading about it, the more I started researching the Dust Brothers, uh, the more I started realizing what a big deal Fincher was going to become and what an incredible eye the guy had, you know, that Seven was not just a fluke. Yeah, um, yeah by October 15th, 1999, considering that Star Wars was v- months in the past by this point, I'd say it was definitely my most anticipated film of the year as well. Yeah, and this was getting tons of hype on Ain't It Cool News, if I remember correctly. That's why I first saw the trailer. Definitely took an hour to download the quick time of it and watched it over and over again. Reading the book going into it, you can't imagine like how this is going to work or what it's going to even look like. And so that was part of the part of the excitement for me at least book comes out in 1996 written by chuck palniak did you read the book before you were aware of the movie 
Was that, I mean, I know you're a, you know, you're a voracious reader. So I, I would obviously it would end up on your, on your radar at some point. No, it was one of those crazy things where I, I just found the book somehow and read it. And uh, then it became a movie, a very marquee movie. Again, we were at the exact right age to ingest this movie and absolutely adore it. And when it came out, definitely saw it opening weekend. Definitely saw it multiple times in the theater. Definitely bought the DVD the day it came out. You know, just sort of really cliche late teenage year obsession with this movie. Uh, I fucking loved it for years and years and years. You know, re- usually we try and do these episodes concurrent with the um, 20th anniversary of the films, and we're a little late to this one, but I'm actually kind of glad because I saw the film opening weekend, October 15th, and I think I saw it at least three times in the theater over the next two weeks, you know, I would take everybody who, would yeah. probably, who you know, I took a took a girl, took a date to it. <laughs> I'm not sure if she, she ever, you know, took my phone calls again after that. But my point is that by the time I turned 17 on October 31st, 1999, I'd, I'd seen this film at least three times in the theater. So next week, I'm going to turn 37, 20 years later. When I saw this movie at 17, it resonated with me, but I, I couldn't necessarily identify with what these guys are going through, right? Because they're in their 30s and I was a teenager. I got it and I understood it and I understood the satire of it. But I, when they, you know, when he says I'm a 30 year old boy, that didn't mean the same thing to me then as it does now. Sure. Right? Like I just recently moved into a new apartment. Uh, I've kind of been bouncing back and forth over the coasts and in different schools and roommates and different living situations. I was just adding it up the other day and I've lived between hotels, Airbnbs, sublets, crashing on people's couches. I've lived in 25 different places over the course of the last (laughs) 10 months. And now I finally moved into my own place and this is like the biggest apartment I've ever had to myself and just started a new job. Feeling very very, very adult and domestic. And it started to give me a little bit of anxiety because as I walk around my apartment, I think about Edward Norton and the, uh, or the narrator rather, and the Ikea nesting instinct, right? Sure. And my, my mom just loves the fact that I have a new place because she's like, ooh, we can decorate and you know, I'll send you a couch and I'll send you shelves and we can use this throw rug and she's just she's just going crazy with the, um, with the Amazon and the Ikea stuff. And it's giving me so much anxiety because I'm like, isn't this what I'm what I've been telling myself since I was 17 that I needed to avoid <laughs> like sure. falling right into this trap but growing up doesn't necessarily have to mean you acquire a lot of furniture but growing up does mean you have to acquire a certain amount of responsibility for your actions and it's being sure. able to take care of yourself and it's being able to realize how far is going too far and I think the brilliance of the way that this movie lands is that he realizes that he doesn't necessarily need to follow Tyler into the depths of hell, right? He can take a lot from Tyler's doctrine. It doesn't mean that he has to go all the way with Tyler. And when he finally realizes where it makes sense to pull back, that's how he kind of becomes his own person and is no no longer reliant on Tyler, right? Yeah, it's definitely a Freudian type thing, right? Like Tyler's certainly the id and he's the ego. I don't know what would be the superego here. But yeah, he pulls back and finds some sort of balance uh, at the end while he's watching skyscrapers fall to the ground. <laughs> sure. Upon rewatch, man, and I had, you know, I, I, I sort of saturated myself with this movie in my teens and early 20s. Yeah. And so I don't think I'd seen this movie in at least a decade. Right? Okay. I had nothing against it. It's just there's no reason for me to rewatch it having seen it so many goddamn times. Uh, so I was really interested to rewatch it. And I came away pretty ambivalent. I still respect this, still like it. I'm just a little embarrassed about how profound I found the movie <laughs> back in the day and how, how important I found it back in the day. Well, I, I don't think it is as profound as I had imagined it to be. This is becoming there. a bit of a trend uh, with you in this series, isn't it? <laughs> well, 
it's not that things haven't aged that well. It's just that, you know, maybe you get grow more cynical and hardened with age or you, maybe maybe it's wisdom. Let's call it wisdom. Okay. It's hard because you, you don't want to go back on something you loved, but there are some certainly, you know, I don't want to be this guy, but like there are some problematic parts of this movie for sure. And the sort of rage within the white male and they're all white males <laughs> in this movie without exception mm-hmm. that it's kind of hard to justify their uh, their own justifications in the movie for for why they're angry and want to fight does that all make sense matt yeah it does i mean this is going to sound kind of trite but rewatching it recently the f- actual fighting itself the physicality of it all has never seemed so symbolic than it does sure. to me as a 37 year old male like when i was 17 i think i took it a little more at face value i took it a little more literally now i look at it and it really is an expression of needing to feel something pain being the rabbit hole that these guys choose to you know infiltrate their own psyches or you know snap themselves out of some sort of ennui this movie has really gone through the looking glass over the last 20 years like it comes out it's this big crazy controversial film it really resonates with you know 17 year old boys uh becomes this kind of like cult cult classic and then even after it becomes sort of like the you know a dvd hit you know it was a flop at the box office then it becomes a huge hit on dvd then it becomes kind of a perennial dorm room classic and then people start to look at it again and be like yeah that movie's kind of problematic right like the controversy sort of comes back around and people start to be like it's really not that deep and it's actually sort of troubling and it's it's glorifying all the wrong things and so then we go through a period feeling that this movie is kind of retrograde problematic is the word we use nowadays we didn't really use it so much in the mid 2000s. No, we didn't. But but I feel like in the last maybe five years or so, and it's all sort of culminated with Joker because for whatever reason, Joker has caused people to re to positively reevaluate Fight Club and say <laughs> sure. they're attempting to do a lot of the same things. Fight Club actually manages to be successful. I'm not sure if I completely agree with that evaluation, but I feel like just having passed the 20th anniversary and talking to people and you know reading retrospective articles, it seems like this movie is as sort of popular as it's ever been like uh, people are really kind of high on this movie recently and i was terrified to revisit it because like you i was like oh man it's just it's just just gonna make me feel like i was just young dumb and you know full of yeah (laughs) i I watched it three times in the last three weeks including the aforementioned uh commentary track which was just delightful and I've really gotten a lot out of it, and it's really resonated for me as a very, very successful comedy. I don't think I found it nearly as funny when I was 17 as I do now. <laughs> That's fair. So in that regard, I just I, I just laughed and beamed all the way through it. Like, the things that work really, really work and still work today just as well as they did in 99, if not better. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a really good movie, possibly a great movie, and I don't want to come here and sort of slander it at all. That's not that's not my intention. I'm just saying the the importance that I put on it as a 17-year-old, I don't find as important anymore, which I think is it's natural, right? Absolutely, but it, but it's also, how interesting is it that in, in 99 or even the, the years, you know, five or ten years afterwards, I think we all sort of agreed, like, well, that's Fincher's masterpiece. He'll never make a fucking better movie than that. Like, he'll work the rest of his career trying to make a better movie but that will 
define his career. And now he's made at least two films that are better than Fight Club since, if not three. Yeah, I, I can. Zodiac and, and Social Network, I'd say, are legitimately better. And, and there are certain days of the week when I feel that Gone Girl is even better. Well, I think Seven is certainly better. You think Seven is better? Okay, that's interesting. There, there's a great... I think, seven's a, I think Seven's a masterpiece, like an absolute masterpiece. Wow, you think Seven's better than Fight Club? I, I ranked all his movies. I mean, I, I have it at number two. right After Zodiac. Okay, gotcha. Social Network number three. With the bullet. There's um there's a really fun moment, not to be such a commentary geek, but there's a great moment during the seven commentary where it's it's pretty clear that Brad Pitt feels that seven is a better movie than Fight Club, but Fincher is more proud of Fight Club than he is of seven. And there's like there's like a little moment of awkwardness where he's like, really? You think you think this is a better movie? And then Fincher um <laughs> He constructs this brilliant metaphor that just speaks to his quick wit and genius. He's like, it's almost like that moment when you show up to pick your mother up at the airport and, uh, you know, she bought you two ties last Christmas and you're wearing one of them. And the first thing she says is, what's the matter? You didn't like the other tie? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be fair, like it makes sense that Fincher would like Fight Club more, be more proud of it. Like it's, this is a harder movie to accomplished, Right. Yeah. yeah. Given this, you know, when you have the script for seven, it's sort of, it's a little easier, right? Like that's a triumph of writing more so than, than directing, not saying Fincher didn't direct the shit out of it, but Fight Club Plus was- it's a true, Seven is a true genre movie. I, I don't know what you would even call, not, you know, not that we necessarily need to say that genre is less important or whatever, but Fight Club kind of transcends genre, right? Break it down for me. What would you say this movie is about then? Like what's the message it's trying to impart? You know, we're the middle children of history, man. We have no great war. Our great war is a spiritual war. And I think that really speaks to how lost Generation X felt. And like I said, this movie resonated for me as a 17-year-old, but it still felt just foreign enough because we are not Generation X. We are very old millennials, but we are still millennials. And so I felt removed from this film because of the fact that it was I was watching as a 17-year-old and it was all about guys in their early 30s. Generation X and the millennials, we have a lot in common, but we also have a lot of things that are different. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... Generation X really is a lost generation that that is defined by just nothing more than slackerdom, right? Yeah. Like they never managed to, they, they never f- found anything of significance philosophically or existentially. Yeah. Generation Xers are in their 50s now, right? Yeah. I mean, late 40s, early 50s. And what, what, are, what are they defined by? No, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I guess that sounds a little harsh, but I, I think that, that that feeling of being adrift is kind of what this movie hones in on and, and latches onto in a, in a particularly interesting way. And I, I feel this is, you know, I guess you could maybe point to Reality Bites, but I, I do think this is the quintessential, this is the defining movie of Generation X, for better or for worse. Okay, so so that message is something I agree with. I think this movie does. It's a generational text. When you're adrift and you're, you're angry about consumerism and angry that that has been given to you as the answer, answer for your ennui, right? You can opt out of that. And I think it's no coincidence that the, the ha- you know, quote-unquote happiest part of this movie where Ed Norton is at his most content is you know where the 10 minute sequence where he's he's in fight club but not into project mayhem yet right he's he's disconnected from the commercial world and he's hitting golf balls and he's he's sort of happy that he hasn't you know checked uh you know been on the internet or watched tv or whatever so like that part makes sense to me p.s that that is the equivalent now if you made fight club today about the millennials it wouldn't be about you know, Gucci and Starbucks and uh, Ikea. It would be, it would be about Facebook and Instagram and, and TikTok, right? Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, um, and, I, and I'd watch that movie. Yeah, I'd watch the hell of that movie. <laughs> I mean, people have been talking so much lately about how, the, how Fincher and Aaron Sorkin need to do the Social Network sequel because of how many crazy things have gone on with Zuckerberg since the original, in the last 10 years since the original Social Network. Yeah. And, and I agree with that. And Social Network may very well be the defining millennial movie Yeah, as well. So even though Fincher is actually too old to even be, I think he's ever so slightly too old to be part of Generation X, he, he has quite possibly made the defining films of Generation X and the millennial generation. The times this movie gets a little icky is, is the, you know, he's sitting in the bathtub and saying generation of men raised by women, uh, maybe another woman isn't the answer. And this is sort of the general lack of women and the, the treatment of the one and a half female characters in this movie is not good. And that's fine. It's not a, this is a movie about men and their anger and what they do with that anger or what they do with that sort of uh, existential crisis. But besides that, I think this movie does sort of get away with the violence and where Project Mayhem leads because they don't posit it as the correct answer. Edward Norton, like you said, does pull back at the end and realize that there's there's an in-between. Like you can opt out of the consumerism part of it without going into the anarchic part of it. You know, I think it's a movie that is sort of coming to a conclusion in almost an Eastern philosophical way about finding balance, right? Sure. Tyler is is the extreme and maybe Marla is even the extreme. And it's about somebody learning that uh, in order to, you know, find happiness or tranquility or whatever, you're going to have to strike a certain amount of balance in your life. You can't have Fight Club seven nights a week. So the, the, are the two ends of the spectrum Tyler Durden and Ikea? <laughs> I mean, I want to make the two ends of the spectrum. Well, okay, so so what if what if Tyler is the id and the narrator is the superego and then that makes Marla the ego? Because ultimately, when he finally makes a connection with Marla, I mean, the moment when he finally decides he can't follow Tyler down this rabbit hole any further is when Tyler suggests that they're going to have to neutralize, uh, that they're going to have to equalize Marla, yes. right? He suggests, he's like, she, she knows too much. This is a problem. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to talk about how this uh, complicates our situation or whatever. And that is the moment where he, where he finally decides, all right, I'm done. I can't follow. If, if, if it's, if it's going to mean hurting Marla, then I'm out. And so his connection with Marla and his ability to finally, literally and, and, and figuratively reach out and hold Marla's hand is like the moment where he actually finds some amount of tranquility, right? It's not just about some sort of like binary, you know, it's not just about connecting to a different gender, mm-hmm. but it, it is about connecting to another person in a meaningful way. Ironically, he has the ability to do that early in the film and he kind of, you know, he rejects it. He turns his back on it. He doesn't, I mean, maybe if he would have just asked Marla out at the very beginning, then none of this would have happened, right? The, the character of Marla is so interesting because it positions her as the ultimate train wreck when in reality, she's got her shit much more together than Numskull and his uh, imaginary friend, right? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Relatively both, speaking. It, I mean, when you really step back and look at it, like the whole going to the support group things for both of them is pretty goddamn fucked up. Yeah, I find it incredibly... I find it so funny. And, and you know, maybe that <laughs> I mean, it, it, just it is. says it's too much about me, funny. but like it, it's such his a, bi-monthly sickle cell circle just always makes me laugh. I mean, it is such a clever idea from uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Let's get into the making of this movie a little bit. How much do you know about Jim Ool's one of the most baffling filmographies you'll ever you'll ever see Matt. this guy has two feature film screenwriting credits fight club a solo credit on fight club and then a solo credit on 
Jumper, and that's it. The David, Ly- uh, the Doug Lyman movie. Yeah, yeah. I was reading that. Uh, what's her name? Laura Ziskin, right? She was the executive who sort of found the book. She was sent galleys for the original manuscript. She was the head of uh, Fox 2000 in late 90s. And so she loved it. She saw the humor in it. She saw the satire in it. And so she wanted um, Buck Henry to write it, right? <laughs> okay. The guy who wrote The Graduate. Yeah. And this movie obviously has a lot in common with The Graduate. The ending is is eerily similar to The Graduate, as a matter of fact. She was compelled to send it to Jim Ools, who was, you know, obviously younger and hotter. Like, it almost does feel like the kind of script like a once in a lifetime script that springs from this person's mind and then they're really never able to to hit that high ever again. J- J- Jim Wills was I mean I'm sure he's been chasing Fight Club since 1999. I mean he'll always be the guy who wrote Fight Club, but it's just occurring to me that I don't know if I saw it in an interview or saw it on like an Ain't It Cool News article way back in the day, but I feel like somewhere it was admitted that uh what's his name, the seven Andrew Kevin, Andrew Kevin Walker. Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, he polished it. He polished it. So, which which makes a lot of sense because I did some cursory Jim Wool's research and saw an interview with him, a couple interviews with him, and uh, looked at his Twitter feed and uh, seems like a pretty pretentious guy. He's sort of writing this Fight Club thing and was doing as many interviews as he was asked to do on the 20th anniversary. So uh, he's available. We could get him on the pod probably <laughs> if we wanted. I'm just looking him up right now. It looks like uh, we're we're fellow alumni of UCLA's School of Theater, Film, and Television. But yeah, I think you know Andrew Kevin Walker was kind of Fincher's guy after um, Seven. I think he also did some uncredited work on the game. So it it would make sense that he would polish this. There was some sort of weird WJ arbitration thing where Andrew Kevin Walker couldn't get any credit for it. So I think they name the detectives, the three detectives at the end, who are insisting that they're going to have to castrate the narrator uh-huh. uh, because that's what he told them they were going to have to do at some point those detectives are named like detective andrews detective kevin's and detective walkers or something oh, really? like that. <laughs> yeah just as, as a way of uh, smuggling in a little credit for his boy akw but yeah it, it i mean you've read the book I, I i've heard that the screenplay takes many liberties as one would expect you would probably have to with a subject matter like this yeah but i hear it is it is quite different from the source material yeah, I wish I could give you some more insight, but I don't think I've read the book since 1997. So, sure. <laughs> I, I do remember that the scene where Tyler and the narrator meet uh, is like on a nude beach, right? right? Yes, of course. Yes. And uh, the whole "I am Jacks walking, whatever I am Jacks, whatever" is a is a way bigger through line throughout the book. But besides that, I can't. Yeah, I can't really help you. Laura Ziskin brought it to Jim Ools, and then they taking it to Peter Jackson and Brian Singer and Danny Boyle. It finally made it to Fincher, and he apparently just absolutely fell head over heels in love with it, saw all the humor in it. Norton explicates this very eloquently on the commentary where he says, has, has there ever been just a better like marriage of filmmaker and material? I mean, this may not necessarily be David Fincher's best movie anymore, but in a lot of ways, it does almost feel like the most perfect David Fincher movie. And by that, I mean just like every single frame reminds you just what a singular talent he is and, and how he can he can just do something that nobody else can do. Yeah. He's a true visionary, and, and this movie might be the just the single greatest illustrative example of his of his ability to achieve a vision yeah it's one, it's one of those movies you can't even contemplate anyone else trying to do it hit them both at the same time i remember you know seeing it back in the 90s just how 
awed I was by the you know the CGI stuff tumbling down the the skyscraper just those shots even the opening credit sequence I just those were some of the biggest attractions for me just sort of even outside the the content of the film and uh, I sort of regret not being able to see this again on the big screen uh, because I don't think you get the the full fincherness without it but yeah I mean that and the and the Dust Brothers sort of the precursor to uh, Reznor and Atticus Ross in a way sure I mean Fincher apparently went to Tom York and Radiohead first and uh, they were apparently just too burned out from OK Computer and uh, so it would it would be another not, maybe not quite a decade till the Radiohead boys started dipping their toes into film composing uh, but it just goes to show you what great taste David Fincher has always had you know we, I think we also forget that David Fincher comes from visual effects like he started yeah. at ILM he was a he was an optical printer working on uh, you know Return of the Jedi and stuff so lately he has often been praised for how seamlessly he can integrate his visual effects into the visual fabric of his film and maybe most effectively uh the brothers the brothers winklevoss, the winkle <laughs> the winklevoss <laughs> not the dust brothers the winklevoss twins in the social network which might be the single greatest visual effects triumph in fincher's entire oeuvre but yeah i mean the the, the, the visual effects work in this bravura right man I, i'm trying to think of the what the johnny greenwood Fight Club score would be like. I'd like to see that movie. I'd like to. I'd like to at least hear every uh, potential Johnny Greenwood score for every David Fincher film. But yeah, it is, it is funny that he he eventually ends up with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who you know have a little bit of a of a sharper edge than yes. the Radiohead boys. Let's say so. So Fincher gets involved and he's he loves it. It's perfect for him. He wants this job really, really badly. He convinces Laura Ziskin and Bill Mechanic, who was the head of uh, 20th Century Fox at the time, to give him the job. And uh, they want uh, Russell Crowe originally, who would have been red hot coming off of uh, L.A. Confidential, right? Wow, that would have been interesting. I can kind of see it, you know, between L.A. Confidential and uh, what's the what's the one he made with Denzel Washington? Oh, I, I keep oh. wanting to say Videocracy. Uh, uh, virtuo- virtuosity. Virtuosity. <laughs> Yes, it's a fun exactly. night. So they want they want Russell Crowe. Luckily, uh, it, it's not too difficult to convince Fox to go with Brad Pitt. Um, he's coming off of a Meet Joe Black, so he's looking to do something a little more, a little more substantial, a little edgier, mm-hmm. to say the least. He's still red hot, and the studio still pays him seventeen point five million dollars for Fight Club, which is a, not an insignificant sum. And then, of course, uh, they want uh, Matt Damon for the narrator. But Fincher is adamant about Edward Norton, of course, and that's the right move. Also, because doesn't uh, Damon just do Talented Mr. Ripley instead? Same year. Uh, yeah, same year. So, so Norton and Damon are both coming off of Rounders. I mean, at, at this point, it sounds to me in, in my research that Damon and Edward Norton were just constantly fighting for a lot of the same roles. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. You, you know, people versus people versus Larry Flint could have gone with Damon. They decided to go with Norton. Talented Mr. Ripley. They were thinking about Norton. They decided to go with Damon. I can see Norton as Ripley. I can't see Damon as the narrator. Yeah, and then the other big one, which I think is also a 99 movie, is uh, Man on the Moon. That came down to um, Carrie and Norton, and obviously Jim Carrey just was a much more marketable name at the time, but I'm glad it went that way, because maybe if he goes and does Man on the Moon, we never get we never get this version of Fight Club. One of Milo Schwarman's greatest regrets. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Pitt gets paid $17.5 million, and Norton gets paid a cool 2.5. Listening to him talk about this film and these, you know, various interviews and things, he's still so incredibly proud of this movie. You definitely get the impression this is still one of his favorite of his own films and, you know, represents one of the creative apexes of his career. This is a singular film. This is an extremely unique movie and there aren't like any sort of, I don't even know how you'd attempt a knockoff of this. It's crazy. 99 is the year of the, uh, 
big reveal. And you know, I don't know how many people went in this movie not knowing the twist. I guess I assume a lot of people like, did you go into the first screening knowing that they were the same person? I did not. No, I had absolutely no idea. So it, it really fucking landed. Did it? But okay. you know, the movie, the movie had so many other things going on. Like it had so much going for it that the twist just almost felt like the cherry, right? Yeah. Whereas I'm not quite sure. I hope I'm not contradicting myself. I'll have to go back and listen to this. No, it's not. It's not a sixth sense situation. No, but I just mean I'm just not sure if that movie really still works without that ending. Whereas this movie just has so many other things going on. It's like the the twist almost kind of feels like a little bit of an afterthought. Or I just it's just not nearly as important to me as as all the other things that are going on. Rewatching it, the like. Uh they don't even try to like hide the twist, you know, like it, it's so obvious when you know it watching this movie, but that doesn't, but, but they, it's done in a way that doesn't detract from the film at all, which is, I think to its, to its credit, you know? Yeah. Although I, I will say, and, and I will give Fincher most of the credit for this, that this one is, is much more of a stretch, <laughs> you know, like at least in the context of the sixth sense, if he is a ghost, then you're working with ghost logic. Um, this is this is this is just a guy. It's just a guy who's literally punching himself in the face and dragging himself up driveways and things and throwing himself downstairs. If you really got to like step back and look at it from that perspective, it's it's a lot to swallow, but I buy it. Yeah, I mean, and this movie's also existing in a sort of hyper reality where you don't really care about how exactly real the scenario might be. And uh, yeah, you're and you're right. Fincher does sell it more than enough for it to make sense. And like I said, when you rewatch it, like all the scenes with him and Durden and Marla are sort of played up upon rewatch to understand what's really going on there. And everything is is delivered so tongue in cheek. You know, when you get all the flashbacks of all the different ways that he's been Tyler, there's a great cut to him having sex with Marla. And the camera pans up to his face and Norton just gives this perfect look like, wow, I, I really am having sex with him. I can't believe <laughs> because he's filtering it through. It's it's not a real memory. It's like it's, you know, it's like some sort of like retroactive retrospection, if you will. And he's not he's not having a memory of having sex with Marla. He's realizing that that was him having sex with Marla and he has no memory of it. So he's projecting, right? He's creating it. <laughs> yeah. And he's projecting himself into that moment and he's confused by it in that moment because he actually can't remember it. All the, all the flashback stuff, they're just filled with, with brilliance like that. You know, the last 25 or 30 minutes of this movie are just as good as anything in, in Fincher's filmography. It just fucking rocks for the third act. One of the great all-time final scenes. You know, one of the best marriages of, you know, of visuals and music. One of the greatest music cues of all time. What is your interpretation of the quote-unquote suicide? Like, I, I, I got the impression that that differs from the book as well. Like, the, when he shoots himself in the face and it goes through his cheek and he has now basically fooled Tyler into believing that he shot himself through the back of the head? What, what, how do you interpret that? I, I, it's just a symbolic murder of his other self. That's how I see it. He's finally, okay. he's finally conquered it. He's, he's gotten, over the, gotten over the ledge, and uh, he doesn't have to see Tyler anymore. He figured it out. I, I think that shooting himself in the, in the head just is, is more symbolic than anything else. But that's not how it happens in the book, right? Matt, I read it in 96. I don't remember. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> At the end of the book, I'd, ex- I'd expect that it you know, would know. resonate for you enough. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how it, how it all washes out, but I, I have heard that that, that that is different. Like you said, it's, you know, it's, it's conquering your demons or whatever. It, it's proving that you don't need this imaginary friend anymore. But it's also proof of a bit of a transcendence of pain, right? Sure. Of being able to sort of like rise above pain. I mean, he's been through a lot of very painful things over the course of this movie, but I'd say debatably 
shooting yourself to the back of your jaw. That, that, that's got to be right up there. But he's so just relieved to be rid of Tyler and so relieved to have Marla back. And they get to watch everyone's uh, debt get erased, which is fantastic. <laughs> Which is an idea that was crazy at the time, but you know nowadays people are people are for it, including me. Erase all the debt. I, I think I think Bernie Sanders should just make "Where Is My Mind" the uh, the theme song for his campaign, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Norton Norton tells this story about being at the Venice Film Festival where Fight Club premiered. About halfway through the screening, they both kind of realized that the Italian critics weren't exactly responding to the film. <laughs> And they kind of looked at each other and like, yeah, this isn't going very well, is it? Like, no, this isn't going very well. And Brad Pitt says, all right, should we smoke a joint? <laughs> and Orton's like, yes, we should. <laughs> so they, they go out to the, you know, the Lido or whatever. Yep. And they smoke a joint and they walk back inside. Film ends. The Italian critics boo the film. <laughs> Brad Pitt turns to Edward Norton and he says, this is the best movie that either of us will ever be involved in. <laughs> He's like, this movie is a masterpiece. I've never been prouder of a movie, my, movie in my entire life. They may be hating it right now, but mark my words, this is going to be the film that we'll be remembered for. This is, We'll never be more proud of a film that we're involved in than this. All right, Matt, you got any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Fincher's first choice for Marla Singer was Janine Garofalo. Oh, wow. Speaks a little more to the late 90s than, than any of these other potential casting choices. Was she too busy with Mystery Men? What happened there? She objected to the film's sexual content, apparently. All right, fair enough. They went through Courtney Love, Winona Ryder as early candidates. Studio wanted Reese Witherspoon, but Fincher felt she was too young. And he finally cast uh, Helena Bonham Carter based on The Wings of the Dove. I mean, this really is such a departure for Helena Bonham Carter, considering where she was at this point in her career and how she was mostly known for kind of stuffy period dramas yeah but uh, to me it's i think it's just one of her crowning achievements it's she is so goddamn funny in this movie and the way that she smokes cigarettes well the way fincher films smoking cigarettes is interpretive artist and creative artist coming together the way the way she's able to uh, to waft smoke the way he's able to capture it it's just an absolutely beautiful thing and her her comedic abilities i feel are very underrated have been very underrated throughout her career because i think she's just absolutely hysterical in this movie yeah i mean she's sort of the comic relief in the first half hour of this movie really originally the film budgeted at about 25 million it ends up ballooning to almost 70 by the time the dust clears you know we look back on this now we're like oh it's you know it's such a cult classic it's such an important film norton and for pitt and for fincher you know so formative but this really is an example of something we just don't get anymore. Yeah. You know, like a $70 million R-rated film about underground boxing clubs. Well, except for the Joker, but you know. Yeah, but see, that, that you got you got IP there, right? That's true. You're always going to be able to lean on the on the intellectual property of it all. But it also didn't uh, didn't do well in the box office. I mean, he eventually, down the road, made his money back. That's, wh- that's where I was going. It, it was a flop uh, in its initial release, even though guys like you and I saw it multiple times in the theater. I don't want to be hyperbolic about this but i on october 15th 1999 i mean i literally like came out of the theater and it was pouring rain as it was most nights in seattle during my childhood and i remember just like standing in there in the rain and just kind of like letting the rain cascade all over my face and thinking (laughs) i i don't know if anything's ever going to be the same again after that (laughs) like it it really was formative for me like it was it was it's one of probably you know maybe (laughs) 
a dozen of the most important theatrical experiences I've ever had in my life. You're like Andy Dufresne coming out of the sewer It pipe. felt like a baptism. Yeah, exactly right. About a year later, my dad gave me a, a DVD player for my birthday. My very first DVD player I ever got. Yeah, my like it would have been like my 18th birthday, like a year later. He gave, It was one of those cool little like clamshell deals that you could flip open and had a little uh, LED screen on the inside. Yeah. Fight Club was the first DVD I ever bought myself. Double The double disc special edition. A lot of great special features on there for sure. I think I spent $50 on it, which seemed like all the money in the world at the time. It was just one of those. I mean, if you walked into somebody's dorm and looked at their DVD collection and they didn't have Fight Club, your your, your opinion of them immediately dropped a couple points, right? Of course. Yes. So yeah, I mean, this was one of the earliest examples of something that could become a big hit after the fact, something that could become kind of a phenomenon on DVD that, you know, that time has since passed during the late 90s, early 2000s. That was a legitimate business model. You you weren't nearly as concerned with what you were going to do at the box office because you know you're just going to be able to mint money. I mean, somebody's going to pay twenty dollars for a movie ticket, but then they're going to pay thirty five or fifty dollars for the special edition, and then maybe they're going to buy one for their for their cousin as well for Christmas, and then they're going to buy one for their girlfriend. I mean, it was it was a really good business model there for a second. It was more sort of meritocratous than it is now, right? Like if you knew you had a masterpiece, you knew you had something that was going to connect. It wasn't as big of a deal if it didn't connect immediately. Yeah, whereas I, I feel like we don't take those kinds of chances anymore, right? Have you heard about Fincher's upcoming film? Have you heard about the film that he's developing right now? No, I have not. He's making a movie called Mank, which is about uh, Herman Mankiewicz, who co-wrote uh, Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. Okay. Actually, I think he. I mean, I think he wrote. <laughs> I think he wrote Citizen Kane by himself, and then Orson Welles, I think, <laughs> gave him enough notes that he eventually weaseled his way into getting a writing credit for it. But for all intents and purposes, the brilliance of the script came from Herman Mankiewicz. Gary Oldman is going to be playing the titular Mank. I'm sure it'll be good, but you know, it wouldn't be my first choice for Fincher's next movie. Personally, that's that's kind of why I wanted to go down this road because. You know, we use this, this has become sort of an obnoxious cliche of the, you know, they don't make them like that anymore. We don't, we don't make movies like this anymore. But really, Fincher is the kind of filmmaker who exclusively makes the kinds of films that don't really get made much anymore. I mean, even Gone Girl is kind of a throwback to a Fatal Attraction era of something that was huge in the 80s and 90s. But we don't get many of those Adrian Lynn psychosexual thrillers anymore. That's true. And Gone Girl was a huge hit, and that's great. But the kinds of films, he, I mean, I think that's why he has relegated himself to... Netflix so much over the course of the past decade, right? Yeah. Master, uh, what is it? Ma- uh, Mindhunter and going back to House of Cards, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he saw he saw some he saw Sandbox where he could go play the the world's smallest violin plays for this genius filmmaker who's had some great success, but got to imagine it's pretty hard out there for this guy pitching movies nowadays, right? I suppose. I mean, I feel like all his movies eventually make money. I mean, Gone Girl, his last theatrical film, made a fuck ton of money. Huge hit. Yeah, one of the biggest hits of his career. I imagine he can make almost anything he would want it to now, especially if it's Social Network 2, which would be fantastic. <laughs> yes, please. God, please give us. I mean, maybe he's gonna ha- maybe he'll get to the point where he's going to have to make Social Network 2 because he has to start making sequels. I mean, I guess his most commercial play, well, you know, Gone Girl was a airport novel or whatever, but the most airport novel would be The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, right? Yeah. And that movie just, I think, barely limped to a profit. I mean, I, that, to me, that f- that felt like him being like, okay, I'm going to try and do something really, really commercial. Let's even just make a big hit out of this big hit book with fucking James Bond 
and one of these, you know, hottest young actresses who's out there, and it didn't really work. I think it's one of uh, it's one of his lesser films, and was not a big enough hit to compel them to make make a sequel until years later with different filmmakers and different actors. It was a really weird choice by him, and I suspect part of it was the studio just backed up the Brinks truck for him and said, "We want you to make this movie." Because I don't, I mean, have you seen the Swedish original? It's almost it's like the exact same movie. So, which is sort of a bizarre choice for for an auteur like him i don't know i i always felt that was a that was a bizarre career choice and you know when you see the film it's 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 a slog yeah you know he keeps making these these literary adaptions adaptations it's like more than half of his movies right or at least half of them fight club benjamin button social networks based on the book right yep uh, Dragon Tattoo. Like he is, he's one of these sort of strange auteurs that we talk about so much who don't write their own stuff. But he makes everything his own for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's been dancing around this project for years. I just can't understand why he can't get this movie made. And maybe it's because he has um, he's completely lost interest in it. But tell me if this doesn't sound like not only the perfect David Fincher vehicle, but the perfect remake and the perfect sort of populist disney period piece special effects epic why has he not finally made his Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea yeah he's been talking about this thing for decades and isn't that perfect like can't you just see that can't you see you know brad pitt as captain nemo i wonder if there's a distance between how sort of dark he wants to make it and how not dark the studio would have to <laughs> the movie would have to be for them to green light it, right? Yeah, I mean, I just want to see a three-hour-long PG-13, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea special effects epic. And, you know, if, if he connect, I mean, Brad Pitt is the right age now, right? So fucking do this thing. Let's do get, it. To, let's get Tom Holland in there as as the kid. Let's get Disney on the phone. I just don't understand why this hasn't happened yet. It seems, I mean, you know, we love IP. We love properties that we recognize. We That's that's exclusively what we make nowadays. And 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a very well-known property that Disney clearly still owns. I think another problem with Fincher is that he is such a perfectionist and he is so exacting and he wants to shoot, you know, 99 takes of everything. His films are just always going to be too expensive. Yeah. And it sounds like he is just not the kind of guy who's willing to compromise on his budgets. And, you know, like if, if, if you could stick to your guns, God bless you. But maybe he is just not willing to make it for less than $180 million or something. And knowing him, he's probably crunched the numbers. He's probably fucking flipped the cocktail napkin over <laughs> and, and figured it out <laughs> to the dollar. It's too bad because I really want to see that movie. And we are, we are way... We are long overdue for a remake i'd say so you, you told me that you you ranked them you, you've got your ranking in front of you here's what i got i got zodiac number one i got seven number two i got social network number three i have gone girl number four fight club smack dab in the middle number five game six dragon tattoo seven panic room eight alien three nine curious case of benjamin button make it on there oh shit i didn't rank that there it is 10 he's got 10 right yeah he's got gone 10. Girl was his 10th movie all right think, i'm yeah. slotting benjamin button right in front of Dragon Tattoo and right behind the game. So that means that, okay, so Alien 3 is is number 10 with a bullet for you. 10, Panic Room 9, Dragon Tattoo 8, Benjamin Button 7. I don't have much quarrel with that. I, I think I might flip-flop Fight Club and 7 on my list because I think Fight Club is superior to 7. But, I, you know, I'd say Zodiac, Social Network, Fight Club, Gone Girl, 7. I think that's my top five. The the great Brian Barini, who uh, we will hopefully have on for our next retrospectating 1999 episode, he and I have this running game. We try to expand the list of directors who have never directed a bad movie. You know, your Christopher Nolans, your uh, your James Camerons. Christopher Nolan doesn't count. <laughs> he's also 
certainly does. He still hasn't made a bad movie. Um, but I mean, see, he, but he directed Interstellar, right? <laughs> but it's good. I mean, that's that's why we talk about these kinds of things because it stirs up controversy, just like this. Yeah. So F- Fincher's always been a bit of a controversial one because I'm an Alien Three defender. I think Curious Case of Benjamin Button is fine. I think Panic Room is fine. So I, I would definitely put him on a list of somebody who has never made what I would consider a bad movie. I mean, I know he considers Alien 3 a bad movie. I think that movie's totally fine. And I think it actually holds up pretty well. None of these movies are bad by any means. So in that regard, he is he is a member of a very, very unique and admirable club. How many how many people are definitely in the club? I guess both uh, both Andersons, I'd say, are in that club. I'll send you a short list. Yeah, I'd say both Andersons for sure. And, you know, James Cameron is probably the, the leader in the clubhouse, but he also just doesn't make very many movies. So he, when you only make a movie, every, you know, once a decade, you know, Stanley Kubrick, I guess, would probably be in there. Yeah. Uh, although I'm not crazy about Lolita or the second half of Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Well, well one of these days we'll just uh, we'll dedicate an entire episode to this elite fraternity. I like that. We, we we have to go. We have to go in blind, and we have to come in with our with our lists. Yeah. We'll right? just nominate. We'll just we'll just throw nominees back and forth, and then we'll poke holes in each other's nominees. And there there'll be a minimum films like seven or something. Yes. Yes. Good. Wow. What a what a convenient number. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, this has been We Like Movies, Retrospectating 1999. Say goodbye, man. Goodbye.